As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Dana Peterson joining us now, chief economist at the conference board. Dana, I want to start by just asking how much has your outlook for the U.S. economy changed over the past two weeks? It really hasn't. We have been calling for a recession starting in the second quarter and extending through the fourth quarter. If anything, this might accelerate things. Uh, Certainly, consumers have already dialed back spending on goods. Businesses are not spending on investments. And also, the housing market has really folded in on itself. And really, the last shoe to fall is services. Now, a credit crunch really doesn't affect services because people don't tend to finance restaurant visits uh, other than using their credit cards. Uh, but certainly, we think that uh, in terms of durable goods and certainly the, abis- the ability for businesses to invest, that tighter credit conditions are not a good thing for them. And that will potentially cause the economy to have maybe a, a little bit worse recession than we're expecting. So that's what a lot of people are saying is that this brings forward the recession. But you bring another uh, specter to the the table here, this idea of a potentially deeper recession. At what point do liquidity concerns at banks become a credit problem for the consumer, a credit problem for the economy, akin to what we have seen in history when there are liquidity issues? Well, if you're a bank and you're concerned about your deposit levels dropping, you're less likely to lend money. But the things that consumers are are already pulling back, they're not going out and buying cars and homes because interest rates have risen significantly, almost five percentage points in in roughly a year. So there may not be much uh, effect on the consumer, but certainly I think there's a risk for businesses who tend to need cash, especially to pay their workers and to invest in and in short-term and long-term venture. So I think the pressures will probably be more on businesses relative to consumers. Does this also shift your view on how much unemployment could go up? Or do you think that we could get this downturn without some sort of structural increase in, uh, in joblessness just simply because of the mismatch right now in the labor market? Well, the... The industries that are letting people go are the former pandemic darlings. Again, it's it's tech, it's finance, it's real estate, it's construction, it's transportation and warehousing, which were linked to the strong demand for goods. So that's what we're still seeing in terms of layoffs and weakness. But you still have these huge labor shortages in areas that are less sensitive to interest rates, such as healthcare and restaurants and, and hotels and so what we really need to see is consumers 
turn that that dour sentiment that we're seeing in our our consumer confidence gauge, which we've seen over the last year, into okay, I no longer want to purchase services, and certainly higher interest rates may not get at that issue. But if but if consumers think well. I might be next in terms of layoffs, then they'll pull back on spending. But all in all, we still think that the unemployment rate's probably going to rise to about 4.4% next year. That's roughly a million jobs lost. I would not want to be in that number, but certainly not as bad as what it could be. We're speaking with Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board, as we look forward to another week, another month, potentially uh, rate cuts in the face of what some people are expecting uh, is a decline in economic momentum. Dana, here comes sort of the rub on the whole issue as we talk about perhaps a sooner recession, a deeper recession and a Fed cutting rates in response to that. Have we dealt with the inflation problem, especially given the stickiness that we've seen in recent data? I don't think we have. Uh, certainly when we see the stickiness, it's linked to wages through, uh, well, services through wages and very strong demand for services. Also food prices, which are being influenced by outside uh, effects. Uh, certainly the declines that we expect in rent uh, inflation, it's in the pipeline. We just have to wait for it to happen. Maybe it'll start in the springtime or early summer. But I don't think we've, we've licked the inflation problem. And so that's why we're not anticipating that the Fed's going to cut rates this year, even if there is a mild recession, um, if you still have prices that are so far above the 2% target, why would the Fed be cutting interest rates, especially if they also think that if there is a recession, that it's not going to be that bad? Well, and this isn't just an interest rate story. It's also a balance sheet story. And we saw the balance sheet increase dramatically over the past two weeks in terms of the Federal Reserve and its holdings. And and part part of this is not necessarily stimulative, some people will point out. These are emergency loans to certain banks at the same time. Can this central bank kill inflation if it keeps going back to the same crisis-era tools to try to solve financial instability? Well, I think the Fed is trying to say that it can do two things at once, right? It can address inflation through the credit channel by raising interest rates and also the continued dialing down of its balance sheet. Uh, but it can also provide liquidity, which, yes, does hit the balance sheet. But it's two, you can think about it as two different wallets that the Fed is working with here. And so the Fed is saying we can provide liquidity to banks, and it's not stimulative because banks are taking this money because they needed to make sure that they remain stable, but they're also probably not going to lend this money. So that doesn't, so that's prevents it from being stimulative or inflationary. So I think that's the key thing. We have to understand the Fed has many different tools. It's using these different tools in different ways and that it can address inflation and providing liquidity at the same time. How much do you think that the Fed can cut rates? Well, again, we think there's, there are no rate cuts for this year, uh, but We'll probably start seeing consideration of rate cuts maybe in the second quarter of next year, but we think that we're we're not going to go back down to the low levels that we saw even before the pandemic because inflation may be structurally higher and it may be more difficult for the Fed to maintain that 2% target. So we think that maybe the federal funds rate next year goes down to around three and a quarter, four percent, uh, but certainly not back to two or one or, or even zero unless we have some major crisis or a very deep recession. Dana Peterson, thank you so much for being with us of the conference board. Joining us now is Patrick Armstrong, CIO of Plurimi Wealth. Patrick, you've usually got a really interesting trade. I know you were short Credit Suisse and you held some of the debt. Let's start there. Walk me through how that worked out. 
Um, so our short credit Swiss all of last year I actually closed my short um, unfortunately at the beginning of March so I started uh, covered it at 290 2.9 Swiss francs a share so uh, made about a 70% return on the short thesis was not much upside in the equity even though it's incredibly cheap but bonds are going to be safe um, it's a systemically uh, important company bonds couldn't fail so um, had a bit of a scary ride over the weekend I'm sure you did some of the bonds I own are uh, senior bonds, all senior bonds, but uh, at the group level. And there were scenarios where if it was a forced asset sale and UBS didn't buy the group, those bonds would have come under pressure and potentially even been worthless. But uh, it's turned out to be a good trade on both sides of those. So, Since we've closed Credit Suisse, though, we're actually short uh, Bank of Nova Scotia in Canada now. And... Um, the Canadian banks became the biggest banks in the world in the financial crisis. Um, they weren't impaired, basically, by the, the same issues that uh, saw all the other banks plummet in value. And I think they're viewed as a beacon of safety, but Canadian banks have a property bubble to deal with, and they've got rising rates to deal with, and um, they're very expensive. You look at every other bank in the world, and they're trading at fractions of tangible book value. In Canada, they're still trading at multiples of tangible book value. So very expensive banks. Very well-run banks, um, but with a property bubble, that creates some risks. Well, let's put some numbers on that property bubble. Patrick, how bad is that situation? Um, well, property, it's always uh, very hard to exactly quantify, but uh, affordability index, Canada's right near the bottom of the world. Um, property prices have gone up 400%. Incomes are rising in line with the rest of the world. So um, zero interest rate policy that uh, led to property price jumps everywhere just were really magnified in Canada. Canada has big commodity exporter as well. So in high oil prices, the economy was relatively resilient and zero interest rate policies have led to incredibly strong property market, especially in the big cities. Patrick, I'm going to help you out. Disclosure, you're from Canada, right? So this is some coming from a place where you can you can criticize uh, your own home more easily. I am curious of whether this is just a symptom of liquidity being drawn out of the system that is exposing other areas as overly inflated that have not gotten repriced down where you see a potential trade. Um, well, it's a combination with Bank of Nova Scotia, just expensive versus other banks. Um, very high on book value, higher on earnings, and... Um, you are going to see impairments on its loan book because uh, banks, their business model is you lend money to people to buy houses. Um, if those house prices come back to normal on any measure versus history, um, you're going to have bad debt in Canada. But it's not just a Canadian story. I mean, aside from just real estate and there are issues or pockets of, uh, of issues uh, in the Scandinavian countries and other areas where there also is an affordability problem, it's also in private equity. It's also in private debt. We have seen this. We've heard this from a number of different people. And then others push back and say, well, it's either repriced or it won't have to reprice because the assets will uh, return to their value later on. Do you think that that's fair or do you think that there are pockets, nodes of potential contagion? Should there be some forced sale, some price discovery in some of these assets? Yeah, um, private equity investors are generally not forced into sell, but uh, if you mark to market properly, um, there's no way private equity dodged the sell-off in treasuries, the sell-off in equities, the sell-off in every asset in 2022, but private equity funds mark their assets down 6%, some of them, things like that, but those aren't realizable levels. So I'm actually, I don't want to just talk about sorts, but I'm short EQT, which is a private equity, a lot of private equity assets, I'm short SoftBank, 
which was a play on higher interest rates and companies that have no path to profitability. But uh, it is also tying into what you just said about marking to market versus marking to what you want to market at. So, Patrick, tell me about the longs, since you don't want to talk about the shorts too much anymore. Um, What's your favorite long right now? My favorite long, um, I like BBVA. Um, if we're talking about banks especially, that's a, a company that's going to grow its revenue probably at 15% minimum this year. Um, they've told the regulator they expect to grow revenue at 25%. Um, interest rates aren't zero anymore. That was a big headwind to their profitability. Um, so I, I'm not anti-bank. I think some of the banks make sense. Um, I like to pair longs with shorts. Um, BBVA, I think, is very attractive value right now. The ECB's coming out swinging, talking about more hikes. You heard the German central bank go Governor saying the same thing, maybe even speeding up QT in 3Q. You think that's achievable? Well, you've got to measure price stability, which they're worried about, but financial stability, I think, is first and foremost in uh, all the central banks where it should be right now. And I actually think we probably aren't going to get as hawkish response as we probably would have otherwise. And it's going to sow the seeds for future inflation down the line because central banks playbook when there is financial stress throw liquidity at it. And um, you've got conditions tightening that are offset by the liquidity they're throwing right now. So it's not inflationary right now, but they have a tendency to leave those policies in place a little bit longer than they should. So I think inflation's really dying out quick right now, but I think it's probably got another leg up in response to what's going to be happening from central banks in the coming months. What's the growth profile associated with that inflation call, Patrick? Um, growth. So I think the U.S. is probably going to fall into a, a technical recession, probably just based on the tighter financial conditions, less access to credit. Um, my view was a month ago it wouldn't, and my view is now that it probably will, but I think it's going to be relatively minor. The employment situation is still robust. Employment's always a lagging indicator, but... Uh, 1.6 job openings for every unemployed person. That's going to change a lot before you see a, a meaningful disruption to the U.S. consumer. Patrick, fascinating to catch up. Great call on Credit Suisse as well. Patrick Armstrong there of Plurimi Wealth. I'm sure he hoped he'd held on for another two weeks onto that short, but 70%, a 70% move? Yeah. That's a pretty big move. Yeah, he, he did pretty well for himself. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Henry Trace joins us now, the managing partner and director of economic research at Vader Partners. What a moment, Henrietta. I wouldn't subscribe it that way. I don't think spying is the right way to describe it. What were your thoughts when you heard that? 
Look, please stop. I mean, that was so terrible to watch. That was really tough. Um, and it was definitely one of the most aggressive hearings that I can remember watching. And I've seen quite a few of them. But I agree with your point. I think he did as great of a job as you could have done. The members knew what they wanted to get out of that moment, out of that five-hour hearing. Um, and it was, as some of the members were saying, the most bipartisan committee and the most bipartisan hearing that we've seen in a very long time. And I think that is uh, really what drove the attention yesterday. And they got the soundbite they wanted, as you pointed out, Lisa. Well, but Henrietta, how quickly can they actually get something done? Where is the actual political will to do something that could make some serious ripple effects, particularly among younger Americans? I'm really glad you asked. I don't think that there will be material legislation targeting TikTok specifically, and I do not think that there will be a national ban. I understand that yesterday's hearing was very explosive, got a lot of attention. It was the banner headline across all media platforms yesterday, but the Congress is not in a position to pass legislation to ban TikTok right now, even constitutionally if they could. Um, what I think is happening, and I would encourage investors to do, is watch Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade Representative, today when she's up on the Hill for the second hearing in front of the House Ways and Means Committee. That's where you're writing a big, comprehensive China bill, and we saw her give a preview of that yesterday at Senate Finance. They were dueling hearings at the exact same time, um, but if you didn't want as much fireworks and you were more interested in policy, you would have watched the Senate Finance Committee hearing, and that's what I was doing. So um, I would encourage people to watch Catherine Tai today, uh, Ambassador Tai, at 9 a.m., because they have issues about China's expansion into Latin America, Brazil, Russia, um, IP theft, human rights, climate issues. This is, uh, the TikTok issue is one that effectively brings everybody to the yard, gets that bipartisan support we're looking for, um, and allows them to craft a comprehensive China bill, which the Biden administration is hoping to do um, after the debt ceiling standoff is resolved, or worst case scenario, in his next term if he gets reelected. When it comes to the consequences of this, how much are you watching TikTok and how much are you watching Apple and other big tech companies that have substantial businesses over in China? This is exactly what's in the Restrict Act. Um, that is the one bill that I do think could pass on TikTok. It's really about all emerging technologies, all social media, and it doesn't just target China. It also targets um, Iran, Russia, Venezuela, Cuba. It's most it's the most comprehensive, and it could theoretically put every uh, social media company on the front of the table and allow the Department of Commerce, obviously run by an extraordinarily competent Secretary Raimondo, um, to see what they want to do, study the issue, and then restrict and ban if they see fit. The TikTok CEO had a tough day. Secretary Yellen has had a tough two weeks. Henrietta, let's talk about policy. Where is this policy effort going on the banking front? Uh, nowhere fast. Um, I have spoken with Democrats and Republicans, House, Senate, for the last two weeks or two years, however it's been since SVB collapsed. Um, the reality on Capitol Hill is that the House Republican Conference is not prepared to move legislation on banking at this time. Um, there are many ideas floating around. But there is no path to 218 votes from a majority of the Republican conference in the House on any legislation. And what I hear time and time again is that you need to see the impact of this banking crisis and the collapse of a couple sort of bespoke boutique firms, uh, which is how a lot of House Republicans think about this, really start to hit the heartland. You need to see farming banks, um, farming state impacts. You know, it can't just be commercial real estate that is reeling from this collapse and potentially seeing their lending ability squeezed. You need to see um, real heartland impact that's not just in a certain uh, couple of places. Most of the Republican conference 
that's I would say about 80 percent was not in office during the Great Recession and they were not here during the banking collapse. And many of them ran on the campaign of we are against bailouts, we're against TARP. And when they look at, you know, ensuring all deposits and passing legislation to hike the $250,000 cap, all they see is bailout. And that's not going to pass in this Congress. Do you see and can you identify a mechanism for the Treasury to move forward and temporarily suspend the limit? on deposits. Is there a mechanism that exists in your mind? Yes, absolutely. And one thing that I recall, you know, I was in the Senate during the banking crisis, the ability of regulators to act is unparalleled. And the things that they can pull out of a hat are uh, really impressive. So um, I think the most focus right now, what I've spoken with Senate Banking Committee staff on, um, and I know Treasury is working on, is shoring up all the things that we would think of for extraordinary measures on the debt ceiling. I would encourage folks to look at Secretary Geithner's letter sent back in 2012, where he lays out like five different baskets of funding that the Treasury has exclusive authority over that they can tap into in, in the event of a crisis. This this circumstance I'm referencing was the debt ceiling, but they can use that here as well. Um, the ESG fund in particular is getting a lot of attention. Treasury Secretary Yellen, once President Biden gives her uh, the sign off, is authorized to use the funds there, which were um, $216 billion as of January 31st of this year, to deploy as she sees fit. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the focus should be. It's on the regulators. Importantly, I think the regulators know that Congress is incapable of action, and so they are already uh, prepared to move, and they have experience if the members of the House do not. Just to finish on Secretary Yellen, she was asked whether she discussed some of these issues and she said she hadn't discussed them. And I struggled to believe that, Henrietta, just struggled to believe that the Treasury hadn't had a discussion about doing away with the cap on deposit, deposit insurance through the mechanisms through which you've identified. Were you surprised that she used that language? I do think that there's been some maybe back and forth in terms of what they're telegraphing. Um, but I also get the sense the Treasury's trying to you know, exude calm and uh, stress, as the Federal Reserve helped them do earlier this week, uh, that there's not a systemic banking crisis. Um, so I do think that acting unilaterally to, you know, provide unlimited backstop would have gotten a lot of blowback yeah. if she'd committed to that. Um, just think about how quickly that sounds like a bailout, especially when you've got guys like Gary Cohn throwing out $10 million numbers. Um, that is just too high. So I, I do think that there was some strategy involved there, which was the worst scenario. Say that you are considering it on an unlimited basis or maybe just say, hey, we haven't had that conversation. I think she picked uh, the least bad option. What a tough spot. Henry Trace there, Aveda Partners. Who would you prefer to be this week, Bramo? TikTok CEO, Secretary Yellen. Take your pick. Oof, TikTok CEO, because you had nothing to lose. You already were going to be maligned. lose-lose. Exactly. Just lose-lose. <laughs> You'd lost already. Exactly. <laughs> Patrick sort of Armstrong, like... Florimi Wow for coming up. <laughs> Chris Moranga joins us now, co-CIO at Gabelli Funds. Chris, your words, the bank crisis, a feature, not a bug of Fed policy. Chris, what do you mean by that? Well, listen, I, I think uh, we've talked for a long time about uh, Chair Powell pushing rates until something breaks. And clearly something is broken. He's made no, um, he hasn't been shy about, uh, about talking about the fact that this credit crisis is going to be disinflationary. Uh, it helps him uh, attack inflation. So um, as long as we can manage through this, it probably helps that part of the, the equation. If we can manage through it, if we can avoid a deeper crisis, one that spreads even more, Chris, is this sector attractive to you in any way, shape or form? Well, thankfully, we have uh, generally avoided cyclical or, and uh, sorry, we've generally avoided uh, 
commoditized businesses and the, the borrow short lend long business is somewhat commoditized and um, it's become less attractive recently in part because funding costs are going to go up banks are going to have to pay more for deposits uh, credit quality is likely deteriorating there could be fewer loans or fewer revenue opportunities and almost certainly more regulation including uh, higher credit standards higher um, higher ratios required and that's going to impact both the P and the E for these stocks. And, and so they're they're less attractive. Not something I'd want to get involved with today. I feel like this market's been uh, exerting the maximal pain on the maximal number of traders at all times. Heading into this year, people were talking about value stocks and how banks fit into that and how big tech was going to be left for dead. Big tech has ripped. Banks are having trouble. At this point, do you still think that big tech can lead, given the concerns around growth, given the concerns that perhaps the cost cutting and the potential right sizing of the businesses is not over? Yeah, I would make a distinction about, yeah, obviously, there's been this uh, rotation back to tech, back to growth. I think much of that is related to uh, a safe haven trade. Uh, investors looking for these big nation state type companies with big uh, credit balances, cash flowing businesses uh, as, a, as, a, as a safe place to be. Um, small tech, profitless tech has not shared in as much in this, uh, in this rotation. And a higher interest rate environment, a, a recessionary environment, is not going to be good for those companies. Um, so, you know, we're still looking for the for the cash flow generators, um, companies with pricing power, and, and that's been the, the formula for a recessionary environment for an inflationary environment. We started this conversation, Chris, talking about the Fed hiking rates until something breaks, and something clearly has broken, as you said. I'm curious what that means about the way you invest in terms of do you go for diversification or do you go for further concentration in the companies that you know best? Yeah, I mean, we're obviously looking for diversification across both industries and companies. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, to a certain extent, we, we, we want to focus on our core competencies. We want to uh, put our eggs in, in a basket and watch that basket. Um, and that's basically what we've been doing unchanged for 40 years. Chris, are we sleepwalking into a crisis, a much bigger one? <laughs> I don't think I, I'm certainly not sleepwalking. and I don't think the market is as well. The market is well aware of, of what's going on and maybe uh, a little bit too nervous, um, given the Recency for many of us of the 0708 crisis. Um, obviously, lots of lots of risks out there, and um, that's what we get paid to to manage. Do you think that breeds complacency, though? Those that have experienced 0708 who always sit there and say it's not 0708, Chris. It's always a little bit different, and, and clearly this time is different. I don't think we have quite the systemic issues in the banking system that we did back then. Um, obviously, um, you know the, the Fed now having raised rates so aggressively does have some uh, ammunition, some dry powder uh, to, uh, to obviously cut rates and, and improve the situation. But, you know, it's, it's what you don't know that you worry about. Totally. And there's so much we don't know. Chris, we've got to leave it there. Thank you, sir. Chris Morangi there of Capelli Funds. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.